Good morning. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. I'm the Director of the Institute for Government, and I'm delighted to be hosting this session on uh, Brexit, year past, a year to go, with the emphasis obviously on that bit. Many thanks indeed to PwC for partnering with us on this, this, uh, these excessively interesting times and interesting subjects that we have this morning. We have a terrific panel to discuss this. We have Carolyn Fairburn, Director General of the Confederation of the British Industry. We have Sir John Grant, who was a permanent representative to the EU. We have Juliet Samuel, who's a columnist at The Telegraph. And we have Jill Rutter, Programme Director here, who's been leading our terrific Brexit team. Well, with that, we're going to kick right off. And I want to kick off with where we are at the moment, um, given the guidelines that have come out from the EU. Carolyn, let me start with you. Where has this left us? Well, Bronwyn, I think that last week was progress. Uh, and if you think about where we were a year ago, I know the title is a year to go, but if you look back a year where both sides, the EU and the UK, had both, both ruled out a transition period, and we knew in terms of talking to businesses how important this was going to be, the fact that we have that not quite in stone, um, but heading in the right direction, I think it gives breathing space, it shows that there is pragmatism coming in uh, to the debate, and that is um, a very good thing. Um, but I think we have to recognise there is massive uncertainty still out there. Uh, first of all, in getting the, the withdrawal agreement uh, uh, signed and sealed, Northern Ireland, uh, the border there, remains a massive impediment to that, so that is a huge uncertainty. And then, of course, there's the publishing of the withdrawal guidelines um, themselves, which I think do illustrate that the two sides start from a very, very long way apart. Um, so the, the European guidelines are very much about a CETA-type deal. Um, they are rigid. Um, they are saying this is what's on offer. Uh, and we know that's very challenging for our economy. It doesn't have anything explicit on financial services uh, and it doesn't really have anything about the right, the, the kind of regulatory model we're going to have. Um, and we know from the Prime Minister that the model that the UK would like is actually much more bespoke. Um, it does have alignment in a number of areas. It does have membership of agencies. So um, we are um, a step forward. But in terms of the many members that I spoke to last week, huge uncertainties are still out there. And I think one of the things that we would say is we would hope to see um, some real flexibility coming into the discussions on both sides, because at the moment the distance between them is very, is very great indeed. Thank you very much. And as you've described it, the EU didn't make an awful lot of concessions to the Prime Minister's pitch for the middle ground for a bespoke deal. It was still very, very much the Canada plus. Very, very yeah. few. And I think it's not surprising. You know, this is a negotiation and it is a negotiating position. Um, we have got the Prime Minister having set out, I think, uh, a model that is very unusual from the point of view of the EU. But as we have said many times, you know, Norway was new once. Um, uh, you know, the, the CETA deal was new once. And I I think that the idea that there can be flexibility needs to be um, right at the heart of, of, of where we go, um, otherwise there will be a, um, a, a, a clash in the middle. Many thanks. John. Um, thank you, Bronwyn, and thanks very much for the chance to be here. I, I, um, I understand that people think uh, there's a lot of uncertainty around, and it's true that if you're looking for 100% uh, uh, gold-plated certainty, there isn't much certainty about what happens at the end of the transition period. I only think there's one big uncertainty really, and that's the length of the transition period, and let me explain why. So 
reading the European Council guidelines has, on the evidence of the last year, um, been shown to be the best guide to what's going to happen. Because if you go back uh, to what the EU side has said in the past and look at what happened, what they said was going to happen is what's happened. So uh, I think a very good place to start is to read the guidelines and assume that absent something surprising or something that is not yet certain, that's roughly what's going to happen. Uh, so what about those guidelines and what's significant in them? I think that that, uh, again, uh, experience shows, both experience of these negotiations and, in fact, the EU's approach to negotiations in general, that those guidelines are principles-based guidelines and the EU will not change those principles. Some of those principles are rather clear and definitive, either for legal reasons, so ECJ jurisprudence boxes in the EU on the role of the ECJ in certain ways and did, for instance, going back a very long time, allow me this moment, uh, when the EU originally negotiated the EEA agreement, the court struck it down in its original version because it didn't respect the role of the ECJ, so it had to be amended. So in, in a number of respects, the EU is in a position where it is applying principles from which it will not deviate. And there's a political principle there too, which is that if Britain is seen to benefit unreasonably from this agreement, then that will create, the EU believes, other political problems. So it won't allow that to happen. Now, that's not a precise principle, but it's a fairly inflexible principle. But there are other things in there, and I think it would be fair to say cherry-picking is a fairly flexible principle, where there is room to move. The problem about uh, moving in the direction the UK wants uh, is that um, that requires two things. Innovation on the UK's part to persuade the EU to do things it hasn't done before, and that's not straightforward. And innovation needs time, and time is what we don't have. Because uh, we know, under the documents that are already published and agreed, that the transition period is going to end in uh, two and a bit years' time, uh, less than three years' time. And it takes a long time to negotiate innovative agreements. So I personally believe, although this is a minority view among the kind of EU geek brigade, I think, that the EU would, if Britain was sufficiently um, uh, persuasive and proactive and precise, be prepared to move a reasonably long way in the direction that the Prime Minister has outlined, but I don't believe it will be able to do it in two and a half years. So I think the core of the problem is that if we uh, move forward on the timetable that's been outlined now, we can be reasonably confident that we will end up with the kind of deal that's set out by the EU in the European Council guidelines, because there isn't time to do anything else. And we can be reasonably confident that there will be some difficulties around the administration of customs and our borders more generally, because less than three years is a very short amount of time to get that sorted out. Um, so that's what will happen if the transition period ends as it's currently due to do. 
And if the transition period is extended, a whole set of other things are possible. Including movement in the EU position you're, you're, you seem to be suggesting? Yes, I think that there is some flexibility around uh, the long-term model for regulation. Um, but it will require the UK to come up with some ideas that are more <coughs> developed than they have so far and which give the EU side confidence that they won't be uh, giving anything away. Many, many thanks indeed. Uh, Juliet, what do you make of this? We've had a pitch from Carolyn saying, look, uh, the two sides are really quite uh, far apart, even though the tone is, is clearly positive and is moving, moving forwards, and uh, business, if I'm taking it rightly, would like quite a bit of movement towards the, uh, you know, the clarity on the regulation side. Um, we've had uh, John describing how really we should take the guidelines that came out as pretty much what is going to come out of the EU in the time available, um, which, as we've been discussing, is some way from the British position. Where's it going to go? Um, I think the two sides are quite far apart, um, and I agree that so far the pattern has been once the EU decides something, then that's pretty much what happens. But in part, that's because... Um, the, what, the, the, the success the British government has had is to manage to push things um, down the road, to put off a rebellion here or a breakdown of the talks, and it's managed to do that with Ireland and with um, two of the parts of the guidelines which are controversial. Uh, so so the, the guidelines, what's, <clears throat> what struck me about them was that they were essentially a proposal for a CETA-like deal, but with more Norway-like obligations. So, uh, fine, we'll, we'll, we'll do no tariffs, but we also want your fisheries and we also want you not to cut taxes or your regulation. And I cannot see the government uh, signing up to that without a huge political problem on its back benches. So, um, so you describe, even though we've been talking about Canada Plus, it's actually, Canada, from Britain's point of view, Canada Minus yes, in some ways, yes. in that we have, to, we have obligations that Canada doesn't have, yes. not taking state aids and all kinds of stuff. Exactly, yeah. yes. Yeah. It's, uh, state aid and, and even, even not deregulating in certain respects, yeah. keeping um, you know, social obligations or however that's defined. And uh, I, I don't see, th there's absolutely no um, logic to that. For, I mean, it's... There's logic to it, and that it's in the EU's interests, but there's no sort of fairness logic to it, and there's no, um, there's certainly no acceptance of that among the government's MPs. And I think that the um, what's happening in the UK, or politically at least, is that we're um, the two sides are kind of trying to formulate what their backup option is, because neither of them are 100% happy with uh, the EU guidelines and neither of them really believe that the government can achieve what it wants. And the backup uh, positions on the one side are essentially EFTA, which Remain MPs are um, discussing quite a lot at the moment, and, uh, and a no deal, which is getting increasingly less credible because there don't seem to be a lot of uh, preparations or indications being made that, um, that the government is ready for that in, in any way that it could be ready for it. So I think the, the UK has an increasing credibility problem on that front, but I don't see how the guidelines can sort of sail through in their current form totally unamended. Thanks for that. Jill? I'm not sure there's yeah. that much more to say, actually, after all the other panellists. Yes, yes uh, there is, and I'm going to ask you lots because, of questions uh, in, case you, in the unlikely <coughs> event. You can't find lots to say. But I think, uh, I think Juliet is right, that I think one of the really interesting things about the guidelines is the emphasis this sort of paragraph about level playing field. I think the interesting thing is whether the UK is in a position where it politically can play that in to leverage 
a better deal on other sectors? Because the Prime Minister in her Mansion House speech was quite interesting on some of these level playing provisions. I mean, we went from Singapore on the Thames uh, a year and a bit ago, in Philip Hammond's uh, Develt interview, through to uh, David Davis saying we're not interested in a Mad Max dystopia, through to Mansion House when the Prime Minister said she was prepared to offer binding commitments on the bits of flexibility Jeremy Corbyn wanted on state aids and competition. So clearly the principle that the UK is not willing to make binding commitments to the EU has been parked um, and was willing to offer substantially similar provisions on a lot of these level playing field things. I think the really interesting question is, is the UK, does the Prime Minister have the flexibility to offer to go further on that in return for something that is significantly better than CETIP? Because at the moment, apart from uh, a bit more flexibility on agriculture, the deal has a much bigger plus from the EU side on CETA, which is all these level playing field provisions, than it does on the UK side, where we're offered basically free trade in agriculture, no quotas, um, but in return for uh, untrammeled access, or access as now, to our fisheries. And we've already seen last week how complicated the politics of fisheries might be, not least because of the Democratic Unionists and the Scottish Conservatives, who are two very important political blocs. So I think it's interesting to see where the flexibility is. I think one of the great shames, and this goes to John's point, about the guidelines being like this, was one of the great shames is the UK seems to me to have missed its window of opportunity to try to get in and influence the guidelines. The Prime Minister has to spend so much time constructing these fragile compromises within her cabinet that she hasn't got any time to persuade any people in Europe to be advocating the sort of flexibilities that the UK might have found helpful in this. So in a sense that two, three months after the sufficient progress verdict at the December Council has been spent getting the UK ducks lined up with about a week and a half then to try and persuade anyone in Europe and basically guidelines were drafted then. Um, it's quite interesting, there are little bits of emergence. Um, we produced a report last week on the views of the 27. There are some people seeking different things. I mean, you know, we've seen Luxembourg uh, for quite interesting, rather uh, vested interest reasons, looking for more flexibility on, on financial services. We've seen what I've called the One World Alliance. Uh, Finland, uh, Spain, and then Ryanair from Ireland asking for something more on aviation. So there's some quite interesting groupings emerging, but one of the questions is, is the UK actually going to be in a position to supply enough proposals that offer some traction that those people can use to actually build support within the council for something a bit different from, uh, from what's here? I think it's very interesting to see quite how this phase of negotiations pans out compared to phase one. Phase one was really quite easy for the EU because simply saying protect citizens' rights, ask the UK to stump up some cash, is not that difficult to remain unified behind. So I think it's really interesting to see, not to divide and conquer, but to see whether we can actually make progress on some of these other things. What about two of the things where there was agreement to kick them down the road um, in terms of the Irish border and the, 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 the ECJ or whatever dispute resolution mechanism it would be? Does, does the fact of kicking them down the road mean uh, there's a lot of goodwill to try and solve these things or just um, too difficult to do now? 
I think the Irish border was, I mean, my interpretation of last, uh, last uh, Monday's agreement on the Irish border was that everybody agreed, let's just go for progress. Because if you'd wanted to stall progress, you could very easily have said there's been zero progress towards solving the Irish issue. Um, we can't move forward. But clearly there was a decision that it was okay to kick it to what's now become the next milestone, which is the June Council. There's supposed to be this intensive working uh, between the UK and the Irish authorities about is there something feasible. Uh, reading Politico this morning, uh, they say that the you know, British government's going to Ireland with proposals to maintain alignment on key areas that matter for that Irish border, you know, alignment with the single market. So that's quite interesting. The UK has tabled proposals on customs. Uh, I think it's fair to read the guidelines as saying they're not very interested in our innovative proposal on customs, uh, which seems to be rejected out of hand. Uh, so I think it's interesting to see whether those you know, face-to-face -face discussions of how do we actually solve that. Because one of the things that's there in the backdrop is the people who suffer worst from no deal are the Irish. I mean, the Irish have zero interest in no deal. So I think it's really interesting to see how that plays out in the coming, uh, coming months. Uh, now both sides need to sort of really sort of get down to how do we make this thing, thing work. Caroline, let me come, come back to you on this and, and particularly the points about customs and mm -hmm. so on. And mm -hmm. we have um, debates in Parliament uh, this spring on some of the amendments about, about that. Where, where are we and where we, what, what do your members want? Uh, yes, well, I mean, the, the, the customs issue um, is obviously going to flare up. And it is just an interesting, actually, a slight aside on how the EU does use process so effectively to drive things. So, I mean, we did have to accept the fact that the Northern Ireland border was going to be in the withdrawal agreement rather than in the final deal. And that is why we are where we are. Um, in, in some ways, I have real sympathy with the government that ideally it should be solved as part of the long-term plan. But that's not where we are. And uh, we have to fix it. Um, I, I, think it's, I, I think it's very interesting that there, there clearly are technology solutions that are being developed globally, if, but if you talk mm. to the people who are developing them and you ask them to put a time frame on it, then it's five to ten years and it comes back to the point about how quickly we can really uh, move on this. And, and I think you know, in terms of our members, they are hugely practical about what it takes not to have a border. You know, there are 200 roads in, in, uh, mm. in, in, between the two, the two nations. Um, there are thousands of trucks moving every day. The business is entirely integrated, particularly agribusiness. And they really care about this. It's, it's, uh, it's going to have a massive effect on the economy. So we do need an answer. Technology is not going to deliver in the timeframes. I think we can be pretty sure of that. The innovative <laughs> other solution has been rejected by, uh, uh, by, by the EU, I think, for actually reasonably understandable reasons. So what is the answer going to be? And uh, you will have seen that we as a CBI, we've been pretty clear on this, that until a solution is found that protects that, uh, that open border in Northern Ireland, staying in a customs union is the best answer. It's not forever, it's not permanent, it's practical, it's subject to uh, that test of there being a better answer. But um, we, we put that out there because it feels like a practical, common sense solution. Uh, and we still are hopeful that there may be some movement on that. Great. Well, we'll come back to the, the, the politics of that. John, let me come back to you. Um, transition. Look, uh, is 21 months long enough? And I also want to pick up on the stuff that Jill, Jill was saying about uh, the, the, the lack of bandwidth, if you like, in the British government uh, for being able to talk to Brussels. Let's start with the transition. Um, so, it, well, uh, I think the question is what, what, what do you want to do by the end of the transition. Mm. 
um, and we've talked a little bit about the negotiation of the long-term agreement. My assumption is that there will still be a wide range of uncertainty in the, uh, in the as it were, the framework for that long-term agreement when we get to October or November this year and we go back to the respective parliaments with the, with the deal. Because six months isn't very long, there are some issues where the British government will find it impossible to move fully in the EU's direction and vice versa. So the process of um, gradual approximation of positions and a bit of fudge along the way will continue. And the real guts of the negotiation and the hard issues will be negotiated next year, not this year, on the long-term agreement. I think that point is important to, to be clear about. Um, uh, I personally don't see how you can get to uh, a place where we have a, an innovative, far-reaching, long-term agreement with the EU and uh, new, uh, innovative, efficient, functioning, tested customs checks working by the end of the transition period. Uh, now, that doesn't mean you necessarily have um, a, a violent cliff edge, and I've heard people talk about implementation periods for the long-term agreement. Um, what I know is there's always a deal, because there always is a deal. It just takes two sides to want to do it. Um, I personally can't see where a deal that reconciles the current positions of both sides and the interests, for instance, of Carolyn's members is uh, by the beginning of 2021. And the point, as I, as I said, um, that Jill threw into this about um, the, the UK government not really not having enough time to take advantage of the, of the uh, you know, of the points when the EU might have been more receptive uh, to, to hearing the British position, particularly since the agreement on the first phase. Um, so I, I think the bigger issue has been the difficulty of reconciling different views uh, within the government as to what kind of innovative ideas might be acceptable, uh, rather than uh, the ability of officials to be uh, creative and innovative. I mean, the answer is a slightly different question, but but anyway, I absolutely yeah, um, quite deliberately, yeah, yeah. <laughs> very very elegantly put, Julia. Let me um, uh, let me come back back to you on this. You know, twenty one months is it is it enough? And what about the? <clears throat> Uh, it, well, it, yeah, it, it's enough for some standard type agreement or for, um, you know, for, for one side to just roll over and say yes to everything. But it's, it's, uh, I agree it's not enough time for, um, for really the, the thing that Theresa May wants um, and that some members of the EU might want if the case were made to them properly. Uh, so, but you know the transition of a, of a more bespoke, yeah, of a more thing. bespoke deal. Whether that would be a trade deal with more bells and whistles, or whether it would be a kind of pared down after type thing, which is the other option, and the two are, um, could have fairly similar results. Uh, one might be more institutionally friendly to the EU. It might be more saleable to Brussels officials to go with a sort of pared down after, mm. but. Um, uh, but the you know the transition can be extended. It just depends on what the mood is at that time, and 
you know, who's running the Even UK though there's government. no language in it at all about being extended. Yeah, but it, it can always yeah. be extended. I mean, mm -hmm. it's like the Greek bailout couldn't be extended and then it was extended three times or, you know, redone three times. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, that just depends on where the negotiations get to by that point. Mm -hmm. And, and do you think that there is, um, I mean, the EU position has been remarkably, you know, uh, consistent and coherent. The 27 voices have been funneled into the, the, the Michel Barnier team. Do you think those 27 voices, as, as Jill was um, describing, are going to begin to have more effect in, in putting out different, uh, different positions there? I think that they, they definitely have different interests. Um, I think one of the things that's kept them quite united right now is that the UK, uh, the, the UK hasn't stuck to anything that it's said it has to stick to. So there's, there's actually not much. Uh, no, no country in the EU right now can see the possibility of a cost being imposed upon them by sticking to a hard line because the UK hasn't actually insisted on anything yet or has um, said that it wants, that it must insist on things that it obviously wasn't going to get and then it had to sort of row back from that. So, um, but if you actually got to the autumn, which I suspect could happen, and suddenly the, the Brexit dog starts to bark, the, the, you know, the, the, it becomes clear that well, the... What MPs, does that mean? Well, the, the, you know, essentially the government has to get its deal through Parliament, yes. and it's not clear how it can do that. And, um, you know, some on the Remain side or the soft Brexiteers think that, oh, well, they can just rely on, the, on votes from Labour and... And, um, you know, if, if they're going to surrender, then they'll get it through somehow. But uh, that's not at all clear to me. It's going, I think they're going to have to get their own backbench <coughs> uh, Brexit Eurosceptic MPs on board. And uh, I don't think that the EU can rely on those people simply surrendering as they have. They've been very quiet or pragmatic so far, and that may not continue. And so that's the point at which EU governments... Mm -hmm may start to think, well, actually, I do have some interests on the table here that I want defended, and um, maybe it's not all going to work out very smoothly. Mm. Mm. Dawn, do you think that's right, in terms of the timescale of when uh, these EU, different EU voices might, 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 might be heard? So, well, <coughs> let's just go back to the crunch point point. Um, what is it about the final agreement that might create this level of difficulty? My, under, my sense is that there is a majority in Parliament for what's been agreed so far. All that remains to be agreed is a framework which can be more or less extensive and more or less detailed, depending on what is politically palatable in the UK. So this can can be kicked down the road. So uh, I, I don't see... Um, at the moment where the, the crunch point in the autumn comes from unless the British government decides it wants a crunch moment in domestic political terms because it can postpone that moment. Um, uh, do I think that there will be different views in the EU? Uh, a bit, because there always are. Uh, the Commission is quite good at finding the point of balance um, and moving a little bit in one direction to make sure that, for instance, the Dutch interests are taken into account without losing somebody else. They're very, very good at finding that centre of gravity. Shouldn't think it's very, very far away from where they are now, but it'll be, it'll be, will be far away. But I, I, I think we must not rely on other countries uh, solving our problems for us. Mm. That won't happen. 
It's done to us. Jill, take us through the um, steeplechase, if you like, of the next year from the UK government's point of view. So what are are the hurdles it has got to get over? Uh, So what are the hurdles? So we have to get through the... uh, So we have to remember that this withdrawal agreement uh, at the moment is... has quite a lot of green on it, but it also has quite a lot of uh, yellow and white. So there are certain things that still need to be agreed, and Ireland is obviously the sort of big outstanding issue. There's also an outstanding issue around governance of the agreement and whether the ECJ has a role on that or it's some other sort of dispute resolution mechanism. Uh, so we've got to got to agree on that. The, I thought the Prime Minister of Mansion House was starting to show more flexibility on the ECJ. She's already done that on citizens' rights, uh, allowing them to have a, have a role for eight years um, after we leave. So that's a sort of first set of things, so that's going to be a stop take in June of where we got to, particularly where are we on on Ireland, uh, through to signing that off. Uh, we also have the starting negotiations, and as uh, people have been saying, you have to agree the future framework. I think it's quite interesting about, uh, then we start, uh, start jumping through some parliamentary hoops. I mean, at the moment, we have a number of Brexit bills, which has to be said in terms of we do talking quite a lot about cans being kicked down the road. So Parliament has quite a lot of Brexit bills. They're not perhaps making quite the progress the government would have hoped. Um, so immediately after... But they're coming, uh, they're coming back in the... Um, after the Easter break, yeah. So, aren't they? We, yeah. Have the, uh, we have the prospect of the Lord's report stage. So, so far, the Lord's stages of the EU withdrawal bill, they've only divided on one issue, as far as I can see, which was the refusal to let them have a dinner break. Um, but uh, the people who have been making lots and lots and lots of speeches in the laws have all said the crunch time is are the three days of report stage, which are in late April. Uh, we have other bills coming down. We know that the, uh, uh, the well-named taxation open brackets cross-border trade close brackets mm-hmm. bill uh, has been postponed. Votes on that because of this worry about the amendment being put down uh, to get the UK to stay or to mandate the government to negotiate the UK staying in the customs union. Um, we've had the sort of rapid legislation that was introduced on haulage permits and trade registrations going through the Lords now, the sort of uh, no deal bill there. Uh, we actually haven't yet seen anything on fisheries, migration, stuff like that. Uh, the bill that we haven't seen and the bill that will need to come up and there's a sort of addition to the Queen's speech list of bills was the excellently named WABE, the Withdrawal Agreement and Implementation Bill, which we're expecting to see as a bit of uh, autumn fun. Um, and I think the really interesting thing is, I think it's very interesting what John Grant is saying about is it going to be easy to get this through Parliament? Uh, I'm not sure I'd be so sanguine. Quite interesting, Keir Starmer on the Peston show yesterday was saying, remember my six tests. I have to say, I didn't remember his six tests, so I went back and found his six tests. One of his tests is, does the deal offer the, in inquisition marks, the exact same benefits as we have now through being in the customs union in the single market? pretty clear that anything like the sort of deal on offer here in reflecting a future framework fails that. Uh, we know that there are uh, around 12 Conservatives who rebelled on the Grieve Amendment who are sort of, you know, in an interesting position of being prepared to line up on some issues uh, to uh, secure a different outcome. So I wouldn't take for granted that those parliamentary passages are going to be very easy. We have the promised motion. We had a big row in the Lords 
about whether the uh, motion needed, uh, you know, if Parliament voted down the motion, would that stop Brexit? And Lord Callanan, um, who's not made himself huge numbers of friends in the Lords during the passage of the bill, you know, was regarded as you know, an affront to parliamentary democracy because he said, no, it won't stop the process of Brexit. But I think David Davis has said that too, so he's just taking instructions Great. from the top. So, and then we have all the implementation activity and a really, really interesting question for the government. We saw the allocations going to departments largely for border preparations uh, just after the uh, spring statement. The really interesting question for government is, are they confident now enough in the transition deal being in the bag to dial down those mm. you know, day one preparations for exiting with no deal? David Davis yesterday said no. Those had to go on, and actually the European Council guidelines say the same thing to European members, saying you have to be prepared for all contingencies, uh, so don't stop right. preparing. Great. So all kinds of difficult stuff coming in a you know, couple of weeks, and right through... Uh, certainly to the autumn. John, you wanted to come back on that? Yeah, only very briefly. So I'm sorry if I gave the impression that I thought it would be easier to get Brexit through Parliament. I don't think that at all. And I think there will be sound and fury of a very um, uh, energising kind through that period. My my point, though, and it was a bit uh, compressed, was that if you think through the scenarios whereby Brexit doesn't get through Parliament, of course there is one. The government falls. We have a new government. We start all over again. Uh, I personally think it's very unlikely. Um, my, my, the core of my point was that it is open to the government to be more or less precise in the unnegotiated part of the October-November deal. Uh, they can flex what they agree to reflect opinion in Parliament and opinion in the country. They don't have to yeah. nail the long-term right. agreement down. Right. Let's just... Uh, dig into the politics of this a bit before I come to questions. We're going to 10.15, by the way, on the, on the session. Carolyn, um, how does the politics look to you and what do your, your members want? Well, I, it, it, the, the politics are so dominant in this mm. uh, and actually we do need to look at what the effect is going to be on the economy. And when I hear talk about kicking cans down the road, um, it sets off alarm bells, real alarm bells, um, because the uncertainty, we are seeing the effects of it now. I mean, I know the economy is doing pretty well. Uh, it's kind of doing in the OK category, but the global economy is absolutely booming, and we should be right up there, and we are not, and the effect is coming through in the investment figures now. So one of the things that really worries me, Bronwyn, is that mm. actually there's quite a lot of interest in kicking that counter down the road. Um, you know, the government may well want to avoid a really difficult vote. So, Jill, despite that litany of, you know, fantastically complex bills, the sort of the uber politics is kind of keep it vague. The EU has quite a big interest in keeping it vague because actually they don't mind the transition period at all. It's not bad. And the opposition may be quite keen in keeping things flexible in case they end up holding the baby. So you put all of that together and my members are saying, we need certainty. We need those hard choices taken, and so in funny way, the the kind of the mood, the, the mood music in, in 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 business has moved from real worry about no deal it hasn't gone away, but uh, less worry about no deal and more worry about no decision, and what that means for investment going forward. So we would like to see those hard decisions taken in the right way. The government, obviously, um, David Cameron's team made a lot about uh, economic arguments ahead of the referendum. Uh, we've not ha- heard so much about economics from the government since, uh, but pretty well every economic model 
uh, that is going at the moment. We've had many of these uh, on this stage uh, debating against each other. Pretty well everyone except one version of a model by Legatum has uh, an economic hit to uh, the country. Uh, does that make you feel as if you're, you and your members are on the losing side of an argument? Well, um, it's, it, it's absolutely right. You, know, you put grit into the system. You put grit into um, an, a, you know, a powerful free trade zone uh, that is nearly half our trade, and it does affect your economy. Uh, you don't have to have really complex economic models to believe that. It's actually, in a, in a funny way, common sense. And I think every uh, analysis of the alternative value of other trade deals has shown that they are in the small percentage points. You know, so the analysis is valid and it is real. Um, on the other hand, I do draw, as I said at the beginning, Bronwyn, some encouragement about progress. So um, we do have, I think, a transition deal. There is softening around ECJ. There is talk about alignment. There is talk about membership of agencies. Let's see what we can make of that. So I have to say, I think that business has been getting its point over, actually. Uh, and uh, we've got an awful long way to go. But that is a, you know, if we can continue that, into some fast decisions, um, then we can maybe get something that is this bespoke deal that works for us, and that's what we should be going for. Julia, the politics of the next, I was going to say year, but even six months. Um, so, well, I, I suppose I've alluded to it. I mean, Jill outlined all those bills that have to go through, and um, that will be a huge uh, and become an increasing focus because there's all this stuff sort of queuing up in the cabinet office that, that needs to go through and it's just not being able to be released because the government can't broker a compromise. Um, as I said, I think there will be a crisis point in the autumn. Um, I think, I mean, the, the best outcome in a way would be a fudge, which um, <laughs> Karen's saying she, she doesn't like, but the alternative is a, is a crisis whereby the EU has essentially pushed too far and Parliament will not accept it and so I think a fudge is better than that um, and then you know you can get through to next year maybe the leader will change and you know the dynamic here will change and there will be a much more um, of a push and a, a better prepared government and a more united government that will actually be able to make its case to other EU members but um, uh, the other the alternative is that there is a big crisis in, in the autumn and um, I don't know how, how that will work out. There may be a kind of storm out and markets might go a bit crazy. I don't know what the result of that will be. And where do you think the opposition will be in its position by that, that uh, point? I think they're going to continue to be opportunistic. I mean, that's this, the, it makes sense for them to be and I think that they will probably vote down, vote against whatever the government brings back. Um, that will probably be their, their default unless they can see some uh, political advantage to be gained from supporting it. Great. Okay, this comes to some questions. Right, first out of the, out of the blocks. My name is Vernon Bolton or King's College, Ox, uh, London. Can I um, ask some questions of the panel? I mean, the first is how long is it likely, to Sir John really, how long is it likely for us to get a free trade deal with the European Union and what happens to us uh, after the transition period if there isn't a deal agreed by then. Um, the second question is, as I understand it, uh, no European country except possibly Belarus has just a free trade agreement with the European Union. They will have something more, either EEA or bilateral agreements. 
or something else. Now, why should a free trade agreement be sufficient for us, but not for any other country on the European continent? Um, my third point oh, is... No. <laughs> well, can, can I just... I've got two yeah, more yeah, brief yeah. questions. Yeah, my third right, point go, is go about on, the EU being a rule-governed organisation, uh, as you say, with certain rules, whereas our approach, and when we were in and now we're out, is a modular approach. We want... We wanted certain opt-outs when we were in. Now we want certain opt-ins when we were out. Now the EU says, unless you accept our rules of free movements and you won't get frictionless trade, now why should the EU transform itself now into a charitable institution to help us out on, on these matters when we've actually left the EU and are no longer in a position to exercise leverage? And my last very simple question is uh, this. Vernon, 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 I'm going to take these as points. No, my, my last, it's, it's, no, it's a one-sentence one question. Is there any logic other to Brexit other than what was called Singapore on Thames or, if you like, New Zealand on Thames? In other words, the for, a fourth term of Margaret Thatcher. I mean, this, this avoids all these problems that people are talking about. Is that the logic of Brexit which people are trying to evade? I'm not a Brexiteer myself, but is that the logic of Brexit? Vernon, thank you, which I'm going to capture as how long to get a free trade agreement. Thank, uh, thanks so much. Let me take one other at the, at, at, at the same time. Um, um, oh, right. Um, right. Go ahead. And, and Hi. Um, yeah, good morning. Matt Alabaster from um, PwC. Um, so my, my question is this. Brexit, the Brexit steeplechase, as you put it, is testing our organisations, public and private, in all sorts of ways that maybe they haven't been tested before. Um, and one of those is, I guess, the interface between the public and the private sectors, the extent to which both sides can listen um, and engage and understand the concerns between business um, on the one hand and our public sector organisations on the other, especially in such, an, such a complex and uncertain uh, environment. So uh, my question is this, how, how easy has it been for our public sector institutions to mobilise, to engage and listen? And how has it felt for our private sector companies, all of whom are different, depending on what they buy, where they buy it from, what they don't buy, who they employ, where they sell, and so on, uh, to engage on the other side. Okay, great. Thanks very much indeed. Okay, length till uh, free trade agreement, Belarus. Vernon, forgive me, there's a lot of people with their hands up. Uh, and uh, Matt's on the public and, and private private sector. John, why don't you start as the um, first of that was directed to you? Well, how precisely long does it take to negotiate a free trade agreement? Um, uh, n not as long as everybody was saying before Brexit, I don't think, or indeed immediately after Brexit. Um, uh, several years normally, uh, given the degree of convergence, and if both sides were ready to accept, as it were, what's already agreed between them as the core of that, I think it could just be done in time, given the new provision for, given the new arrangements for provisional application of agreements. I don't think that's the, the, the issue, is not how long it takes, it's how innovative do you want it to be, that's the problem. Just because it's called a free trade agreement doesn't mean it's, not doesn't mean it's ambitious and far-reaching. It's just not participation in the single market and the customs union. So it could be a very far-reaching agreement and a free trade agreement. If you look at what's in the European Council guidelines and the headings they provide, if those headings were filled with substance, it would be a really chunky agreement. It just wouldn't be the single market and the customs union. Belarus? Well, I, I, sorry, it, it, we will be much more far-reaching than Belarus. Fine, Fine. great. If Fair. we get one. 
Carolyn, particularly the, the public and private. Yes, if I just pick up on the on the rules-based point, though, Vernon's point about about that. I, I the, the EU is hugely rules-based. We know that, but there's more flexibility than you think. I mean, I've been really struck by the fact that you know, the, the EU has said you can't be a member of any EU agencies. There are at least 12 EU agencies which already have non-EU membership. Um, free, freedom of movement apparently uh, set in stone. Actually, the kind of rules that different countries operate um, are far more flexible than and, and many of things we could actually have done in terms of requiring people uh, to, to, to have jobs. So um, I, I think that we need to be pushing as hard on the European red lines uh, as, 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 as anything um, because the rules uh, can be more flexible than we think. Um, on this incredibly important point about the relationship between public and private, um, I, I think it's, um, it's been creaky. Um, it's been creaky but getting better. Uh, so since the election last year, I think that the engagement between private sector and government has improved a lot. I think that's one of the reasons that you've seen the progress around transition, uh, around some flexibility around the red lines that would have been so damaging uh, to business. But I think we have to be really clear now, we're going into a brand new phase. We're going into a trade negotiation. And if you look at what Canada and Australia and the other kind of you know, great experienced countries in this kind of negotiation, they set up very uh, clear man-on-man -man marking between, between government departments and the private sector, sometimes with NDAs signed. It's a proper architecture. We do not yet have that. And I think one of the things that we need to do in this, um, in this period of, of, of kind of preparation is to, get, uh, is to get that set up. Otherwise, we know the EU are very, very good at this, and we have to be able to be very, very good at this uh, on our side as well. Uh, yeah, well, just one point on the, this rules-based question. I mean, the EU is rules-based until it's not. Um, they, it's a rules-making institutional body, so set of bodies. So, uh, and, you know, there are parts of um, its institutions which were specifically designed to be a pick-and-choose single market, like the EEA EFTA countries. That was specifically made because they didn't want their fish and their resources included. So... When it wants to, to pick and choose rules, um, the Growth and Stability Pact would be another example. There are, you know, then it does. Uh, and, and trade isn't about the EU becoming a, a charitable organisation. It's about mutual self-interest. Great. Jill? I just want to pick up Max's point about uh, whatever. I think uh, looking at it as a former, uh, former civil servant, it's very difficult to actually have a constructive engagement with... Uh, outsider's business if you actually don't know what you can constructively engage on because there isn't a sort of decision. I mean, it's, you know, all you can really be is in receiving mode. And we certainly heard that for really quite a long time, businesses were finding that government, I think someone described it as a sponge, they could pass views in. And actually, I think some of those have got, got through, but uh, they weren't getting very much back. And so I think that's been a real problem. Hopefully now we have the Mansion House position and we are moving into phase two. The quality of that engagement and quality of that engagement, both about sort of high-level things, but also some of the nitty-gritty. And we've had some stuff in the past week or two about the way in which business is being involved in the border planning group. It's quite interesting, actually. You know, government needs to know from the people really on the front line how you're going to make these things work. And that's actually not the trade association. It's not the sort of you know high-level sort of CEOs who sit on sector councils. It's the people who have to sort of get the goods over the border. So I think hopefully that's going to improve. I think the message about agencies I thought was really interesting in Mansion House, there's some willingness and 
Uh, I was at a thing with Michael Gove the other week, and somebody asked him about the decision to seek, mem you know, seek participation in the European Chemicals Agency. He said, well, actually, what we've heard from industry is they would prefer the chemicals regulation bird-in-the-hand known entity versus some sort of future, you know, perhaps more liberal regime that we could bespoke British regime for chemicals regulation. That's why we want to do that. And I thought it was quite interesting that Michael Gove had been moved to, to supporting that position. I think one of the worries, though, on engagement is it's quite easy to engage with well-organised people. One of the things we do know is that uh, you know moving outside the customs union means this? I think 130 to 180 thousand. I think someone said 150 thousand businesses who export but export only to the EU suddenly are going to be faced with a whole bunch of customs procedures and may not even have clocked yet that that is coming down the road. So I think it's a really really interesting challenge for government about what it's communicating and when. And one of the things we noted was that the quality of communication coming out of both the Commission and other member states was quite a long way ahead of anything being given to business from the UK government yet. All right, let's take a couple more. Here, here on the aisle. And then... Uh, yes, uh, John, John Beat from The Economist. I, I want to go back to, to Parliament in the autumn. Um, I mean, John seemed to be suggesting we could fudge... The, what the final deal will look like and therefore MPs won't have anything to vote against in effect. And Juliet was sort of saying we want to avoid a big crisis in the autumn. I, I just feel imagine you are Anna Soubry um, <laughs> and you will be told in October you have to vote for this deal because the alternatives there are two alternatives if you vote against one is you get a Corbyn government and this, the other is there is bound to be a, um, a no deal Brexit. Um, if you were Anna Subri and you were told those two things, would you believe that? Because it seems to me there is an obvious alternative, which is an extension of Article 50. Let me just take, take that one to, to you two. So can I just uh, uh, protest against the use of the word fudge? Makes it sound as if the natural process of EU negotiation is somehow reprehensible. That's how you move forward. You, you approximate positions by a series of <coughs> agreed texts. And so I don't think we should, you know, it shouldn't be regarded with derision. Uh, it's a way of making progress. Yes, I suppose that's always an, uh, an option at the end of the day, isn't it? I believe that the EU side, if confronted with a British political crisis, which would lead to no deal, would probably be prepared to extend uh, the Article 50 period, but it will never admit it until the very last point. Um, I, I, I think you probably would believe that if you were Anna Subri, uh, and therefore I think that the uh, dynamic is between um, whether the government has its Eurosceptic backbenchers on board and whether it can square that with, with the, whether it can work out a compromise with the EU to do that. And how much does the attention of the autumn uh, um, uh, and the, the hurdle for the government depend on how many amendments are accepted? And obviously the Speaker moment, John Burko uh, has a lot of discretion over which of those amendments to, to accept. Uh, well, it, it, it depends more on the substance of the amendments than yeah. how many. I mean, the, the government so far has had a few um, avoidable mm. sort of defeats. If it had thought a little bit ahead, it, it mm. could have avoided some. So it, it depends also how they manage that process. We'll come back to that in the time. There was someone wa waving his hand very, very vigorously. Yes, it, it was you. No. Uh, David Hanley, House Lords. It is actually six days on report, not three, oh, six. Uh, which means, uh, by the usual rule of thumb, about 12 votes at least. Mm. Um, 
Sorry, two questions. Uh, first of all, on the Irish border, uh, if the government's position is as set out in the Financial Times this morning, uh, what does the panel think about the possibility of applying full regulatory alignment to the 124 areas identified as covered by the Anglo-Irish Agreement and divergence on all the rest? Do they think that is compatible with no controls on the border? Uh, and secondly, on fisheries, uh, I wonder if the panel could throw a bit more light on that. Uh, would you confirm that Britain gave historic rights to a number of European countries before it joined the European Union, uh, when it went out from 6 to 12 miles territorial waters, uh, and that there will inevitably have to be a negotiation which trades off access to our waters for against access, tariff-free access to the European markets for fisheries products? Thank you. And let me come also here in the middle. Thank you. Um, Robert Morland, I'm a former member of the European Parliament and I'm a fan of Anna Soubry. Um, <laughs> um, if I can follow up the discussion on free trade, which is now uh, bespoke free trade, has come into the language from government uh, recently. But the area that seems to me to be ignored is actually the single market. Because in all the discussion about how the whole purpose of, of leaving the EU is bringing back decisions to Britain, there surely must be a lot of concern that outside the single market we're going to have a lot of decisions taken in relation to the single market that's bound to affect us. The very obvious one being aviation. We couldn't really avoid any EU, EU decisions on that. And I'm wondering if there is really any thought and discussion to it and if I may say so, and I'm afraid it's directed largely at Carolyn, the bane of my life, shall we say, over the last 15 years has been the business approach. And if I may say so, the anemic business approach. And I'm fed up with sitting next to businessmen in the last year who tell me about all the woes of Brexit, how they're going over to get their office ready, etc., etc. So I say, why don't you say it publicly? And they flee. And I'm really wondering when the CBI, and you're now basically the only decent organisation after what's been going on at the IOD in business, is going to be a bit more forthright and remind us of Philip Hammond's comment before the referendum that the best deal economically for Britain and for trade was in the EU. Okay, thank you very much for that. We'll take those two. Um, Jill, can we start with you, though? Northern Ireland and fish. Okay, I haven't read today's FT, so uh, apologies. Uh, so I'm not quite sure. I mean, uh, what will people be looking for to avoid controls? Well, you clearly have to remain aligned with the single market on all areas that are traded across that border. Uh, that's the first thing. Not only does the UK have to commit to that, we presume you have to commit that there are no goods circulating in our market that don't meet those standards, which means huge difficulties with potential uh, trade deals with people who don't meet single market regulatory standards. And I would have thought, and the third thing, obviously, because you know, the thing about Ireland is 
Uh, single market alone doesn't solve it because you also have the customs position. So if we uh, are not members of the customs union, you have a problem. So I haven't seen the proposal, but, uh, but I think it's interesting if there is a sort of substantive discussion going on about how, you know, how far you can go on, regulatory, on maintaining regulatory alignment. Uh, that obviously raises another issue for the EU, which is also the governance of that regulatory alignment. What the Prime Minister seemed to be offering in Mansion House was a trust us, we'll say substantially similar. One of the things we know that the EU likes about their system is not only are there sort of commitments to align, there are enforcement mechanisms on alignment through the ECJ. So interesting to see whether we're doing that. I think fisheries is really, really interesting because I think, David, you're exactly, you know, at the end of the day, the view, you know, the promises we have made that we're taking back control of all our waters and the sort of, you know, Norway has 85% uh, Norwegians fish, Norwegian waters, Iceland has 95% or whatever. We're not going to meet those. And we have this sort of interesting thing that Brits don't particularly like the fish, uh, like to eat the fish fished in UK waters. And we have massive exports into the EU and we need those to stay tariff-free. So I think it's going to be a mega bust-up. The interesting thing within government is always the how small fisheries is as a percentage of GDP. I mean, it is variably sort of, you know, 0.12% downwards of GDP. It is a very small thing. Its political salience is massively outweighed um, uh, by its political salience, massively outweighs its economic salience. It's a really interesting issue for government. Last year, we wrote a report called Taking Back Control of Trade, and we got complaints from the civil service that we'd said in the press notice that the government didn't have the processes necessary to make difficult trade-offs that were an essential part of trade policy. They said they thought that was very unfair. I think fish is a huge, big you know, test case of can the government make trade-offs uh, that are politically very difficult, but probably economically essential to, uh, to smooth the way to a future agreement. It's very interesting the way the EU treated fish in their guidelines, I thought, was saying you can have all these things, but we need to maintain you know, mutual access on current terms to your fisheries waters. Shall I come on to Carolyn? A direct challenge in businesses being anemic um, in saying what it thinks. I, um, listen, it, it is absolutely right that I think that the referendum result was really challenging for lots of parts of our society, including business. How do you respond? Because I think it's very, you know, we, it, CBI campaigned very strongly for Remain. 80% of our members wanted to remain, only 5% wanted to leave. Um, but the result was a result. So I think where business has been focused since then has been on getting the right outcome, not necessarily on getting headlines and shouting from the rafters. And, and I think what has really counted there is evidence that um, we and others have been taking into the government about why you need transition, about why alignment on regulation really matters. Yes, okay, the chemicals industry may have fought against the REACH regulations, but actually now they're here, they want to keep them. And these are exactly the kind of, I think, balanced evidence that um, business has actually pre been pretty good at taking in. And so it, when I look at it, so I started with where we were a year ago, it has been real progress. The other thing I think the business has been doing a lot of is engaging locally with MPs and engaging on, on what this means for your, for, you know, for Birmingham, for, uh, for Newcastle, for, um, for, for Cardiff. And um, 
I think you are seeing that starting to, to, to play through. Would it have been more effective for business to be shouting on the front page of the FT the whole time? I'm not sure. I, I, I think that the, the political environment here is really complicated and why people voted in the way they did. So um, uh, I don't think anemic is fair, actually. Um, and I think if, if business had been really anemic, we wouldn't have made the progress that we have made so far. Thanks very much. Julia, politics of fish. <coughs> fish. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, it's not just the, the UK side making a big deal of fish. It's the EU side that threw the fish into the, into the agreement. Um, and it, in a way, you think, well, where the hell did that come from? It's not, you know, you, do you have access to, to Canada's territorial waters? No, you don't. And, and so if you're going to offer the same terms, what possible reason is there for us to um, give an open access to a natural resource? And I think it's... Um, it's one of those things that sort of straddles um, uh, politics of a, of a sort of interest group, but also territorial claims. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's very emotive. Um, you know, it's like it, there, was a, there was a point in the Greek crisis when I think they started talking about mortgaging island, uh, islands to Germany. And I mean, it, you know, it's, it, and it has that sort of feel about it that, you know, um, this is our this is our territory and this is our land. So I think that's part of why it's quite so emotive. Even though economically, as Jill says, you know, it should be a, a bargaining chip on the table like any other. Um, and I think that also obviously applies to to Ireland and um, the Irish border issue. I mean, this this notion that we um, we can align, as you said, for what was it, 134 so, um, uh, areas. Uh, and yet diverge on, on the rest. I don't know what the rest is, but um, it's... Uh, and also one of those areas being would surely have to be agriculture, in which the government... And that is one of the only areas in which the government has actually started to lay out a, a set of principles for how we would do things differently and actually better after Brexit. So um, I don't know how that's going to... Um, I mean, I, I've, I've written quite a lot about the Irish border. I think at some point there will be a betrayal made, whether it's of the unionists or the people who, who live in Northern Ireland or, um, or whether some fudge can be worked out. But it's, it's extremely intractable. A particularly resonant word in that, that context, yeah. Um, John? No, I don't think I've got anything to add except on one point, which Jill mentioned, which is about making trade-offs, is you can't make trade-offs unless you've got discards. In other words, if you've got 10 things and you have to have them all, you can't do trade-offs by definition. That applies to both sides. It's not naturally an equal negotiation, this one. Um, so one side probably needs a few more discards than the other. But it's just and a the question is whether fish is one. Uh, I, I, yes, sorry, I should say, I don't think fish is, fish is, is not an easy discard for anybody. Okay. But the EU has fish in a lot of its uh, third-party negotiations, and it won't give up completely on this one. Great. Let's take a couple more. Uh, there in the middle. Uh, Vicky Price from CUBR. Um, I just wondered on the politics. I think we, we said that um, perhaps there isn't going to be another election and, uh, and people are going to be quite careful in terms of how they vote to prevent, uh, to prevent that happening uh, in, in, the, in the very short term to medium term. Uh, but Brexiteers are talking about uh, making the consensus, agreeing whatever is being discussed now, uh, and then the real prize is leaving the EU. Uh, d is anyone in business, and also when we're discussing it today, 
uh, also putting in the possibility that they will seize control at some point. And in fact, whatever we think the transition deal will be, since it's not actually signed or, uh, and, and can move, um, actually could be thrown out of the window and, and some much tougher hardline Brexit stuff will come and, and Caroline and her, and her group uh, perhaps have to worry about that too as a possibility. Thanks. And then straight behind you. Thanks, Dennis McShane, former Europe Minister, author of three books on Brexit. The one I'm working on now is called From Here to Brexiternity, because I think it's going to last a long time. I'm completely with John on, on that. Can you ask John just a technical question? It will be a withdrawal treaty that's drafted by October. Uh, it's a deal, grand term of a deal is wrong. It's technically, we are leaving an intergovernmental organisation called the European Union. We're resigning from the treaty. It actually can be quite simple, can't it? And put into the transition period the next set of talks. And then once we're in those, there could be another transition period. We will leave the EU, we'll have fulfilled the mandate of the referendum, but we'll still maintain existing economic trade, other arrangements. Isn't that broadly right? And to Juliet, sort of fascinating on the politics of this. I noticed you used the word betrayal. Um, do you think the bulk of about the 220 Tory MPs, or many of whom I know, who don't talk about Brexit, don't like it, are quite happy with the way Mrs May is gently just like a Fabian delaying, pushing things on and on and on? Are they really going to rise up in revolt to follow Jacob Rees-Mogg uh, and your paper, if I dare say so? Okay, and let me take one more um, straight behind. Okay. Uh, Chris Francis, many thanks. Uh, really with regard to John's statement of um, previous behaviour being the uh, rule for the forward behaviour, do we think... As what, sorry? Your, your statement that the uh, EU uh, statements were the deciding factor or the, the best arbiter of forward behaviour because what they said in the past has happened. Um, as the EU faces its own budget decisions and will see the UK make its own trade negotiations, do we think the e those will affect the EU position? Okay, thanks. Interesting range of things from no deal to uh, the, how far will Rees Mogg take it? And, and, and the last one. Um, uh, Carolyn, let me start with you. Yeah. Um, Vicky, your question about uh, the, there's still the risk of everything blowing up and no, and no deal. I, I don't think business has ever underestimated the risk of that. The, um, the seductive appeal of just walking away, um, particularly given, frankly, it, how difficult it is to communicate the impact of that uh, publicly. Um, I, I, and the ERG, I think we know, has been very influential uh, on government policy. What I would say, though, is two things. I think, first of all, I think the rhetoric has genuinely changed around that from uh, the, uh, the Lancaster House speech to the Mansion House speech in terms of government tone. So no deal is now treated very much as outside possibility backstop than something which is here, you know, if you don't do this, we will do it. I think that is a really significant change. And mood music for business investment actually really, really matters. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say, simply the passage of time makes it impossible. I mean, I would look now at, at, at a cliff edge exit um, in March 2019 as pretty well impossible. Um, it takes two years to train border officials. The technology won't be ready. You mean technically um, we couldn't, couldn't we afford just, it, but, we, but we, that's not as it's completely unthinkable. It is not, I mean, but it would be an act of, it would be an act of madness. Uh, and, um, okay. Okay. 
But in terms of how you then start telling those stories publicly about what would happen, the nearer you get to it, the less time to prepare there is, and the more the logic, I think, is very, very sound. So we have just felt over time that this risk has receded. It hasn't gone away. You will hear financial services firms in particular say it is not copper-bottomed, it's not legally uh, to, to be relied on. So they are carrying on with their contingency plans. I mean, we know that. Banks are continuing to move people and, 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 and make their plans because it's not copper-bottomed. But I, I think that the risk has, has diminished very, very substantially. Still there, but a lot less than it was. And John? All of them, any particular one? Um, so I don't think the EU will seek to advance its financial interests through modifying its position on the long-term agreement or the length of the transitional period, if that was the question. In other words, it won't play a game in order to get more of our money. Uh, however, the issue, if, if, if in the event that there was an extension of the transitional period, that issue might arise. But it's not a, it, it wouldn't be, as it were, um, a, a deliberate ploy on the EU's part to seek to extract rent from us. Um, and to Dennis's question, I mean, uh, yeah, I think just to sort of come play back what I think you were saying, Dennis, I mean, there will be, I've just looked at it again, there will be a withdrawal agreement. It will provide for a transition agreement. That transition agreement ends in December 2020. At that point, there will either be nothing or a new long-term agreement or an extension of the transitional period in some shape or form. I don't think there can be anything else. And nothing would amount to another cliff edge of the sort that Carolyn was talking about in 2019, which she seems to uh, not be very attracted by. There's the re-smog uh, point directed particularly at you of how far... Are they, are, they, are they going to accept uh, all these compromises as they come through? How far are he and his tribe... They're, they're prepared to accept a lot of compromises on how we get <coughs> to the end point, but I don't think they will, in the end, um, just roll over on everything that people seem to assume they will be. And I think that um, if you if you talk to Eurosceptic MPs, they, um, you know, they're they're prepared to be quiet at the moment because they believe that many things have not yet been resolved. And, uh, uh, you know, if, if you ask them about no deal planning, um, they'll say, well, there's a lot of planning going on. The government's just decided not to talk about it, which is partially true, but partially um, quite unbelievable. Um, and, uh, uh, but, you know, and, and you'll say, well, how would it work? How would it work if we just ran out of time? And what, one answer is, well, um, you know, just... We haven't been checking lorries on a Monday, so why would we check them on Tuesday? And so there's um, there, there's a there's still a, a an idea that that is an option on the table, and I don't think that um, maybe maybe the chance has reduced. I don't think it's gone away. Um, the 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 use of the word betrayal was in relation to the Irish border in terms of um, the government. Uh, well, I th actually think that the government's proposals uh, were fairly pragmatic in terms of not checking uh, most of the local trade that goes across that border, but it's probably going to be forced into having to choose between um, 
unionists and the kind of Brexit that it wants for the whole country. And so uh, it will have to betray or go against one of those groups and um, or, or, the, or people who live on the border whereby they'll have to have some kind of check. It could be, um, you know, a check for only, you know, 15% of the traffic that goes across that border, but there will probably have to be some infrastructure there. So either that or the whole country will have to sign up to being effectively in the single market, which um, I would say would be a pretty big betrayal of the entire Brexit project. So, uh, and I think we still don't know which it's going to do. All right, and I could push you further on, on whether or not the, uh, the, the Brexiteers would be prepared to bring down the government um, in those circumstances. But let's, let's try and just get in, get in a few more before we finish. One here in the front and then straight behind. Thank you very much. It's Masato Kimura, Japanese journalist. I have an interview with a lot of Japanese companies based in UK, and they have already gone to continent and is going to continent by next March because of they have to prepare for the worst scenario. But it's not so much, but to some extent, I think. And they expect a new idea, new attractive idea for third parties, uh, such as a financial big bang in 1980s. And because if you don't have a new idea, uh, they, they are not coming back to UK. And mm. so, and as John Pete said, and if we have to prepare for the Corbyn government, uh, which is better for the third party companies uh, between no deal or Corbyn government? No, marvellous question. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Hand straight behind. Uh, thank you very much, John Soares. Um, there's been some talk this morning of Brexit delayed, but none at all of Brexit derailed. Uh, I suspect mm. that's realistic. Um, so assuming that sometime in the next several years we leave the European Union, I'd just like to ask the panellists to this Remain-leaning audience, which I am part of, um, what are the positives that we might be able to get out of this? Um, Juliet mentioned agriculture, where Michael Gove has been doing some quite interesting thinking. Um, as we, uh, in 10 years' time, when we look back on this process, in what way can the UK actually take advantage of leaving the European Union? What straws can we saddened Remainers grasp at uh, at this stage of the process? And what should we be looking to achieve out of this process on the positive side beyond just restoring as much of the opt-ins and the, and the uh, engagement with the European Union that we have at the moment? Okay, thanks for that. I point out we are scrupulously neutral and uh, we have strident people on both sides pop up. Um, uh, Carolyn, let, let me start with you. Uh, it says uh, a, a comment about what, what, um, what big deal might tempt Japanese companies to stay and what should they fear worse, uh, fear more, um, uh, no deal or a Corbyn government. And then uh, John's about what are the, the, posi the positive side of this. It's a, it's a pretty dreadful choice, isn't it, to be facing our, our, our great multinational investors with. And I, I have to say, I think as a country, we can do, we can do better than that. We shouldn't be creating uh, that, 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 that choice. And, and hopefully the compromises will, uh, along the way, will help us get there. I am very struck. We have many Japanese members. How, I mean, the deal in coming to the UK was that gateway to Europe. I mean, that was the deal. And there is, you know, a sense of betrayal, I, I, I think. Um, but uh, the fact that we have the transition arrangement and that breathing space ought to create the time 
to be able to sort out, I think, a set of arrangements that work. That's absolutely you know, our ambition. Um, and we need to kind of take that choice away, frankly, uh, so that investors, they still see the UK. When I travel, I was in Japan, I was in China earlier this year. The UK is still seen as a fantastic place to invest. Our innovation, our universities, our rule of law, these are all things which mark us out globally. So I hope that Japanese investors will um, bear with us uh, while you know, we're showing common sense, I think, and we will show more common sense, I'm convinced of it, um, over the coming year. But we must do better than a choice between uh, no deal and, uh, and a hard left-wing government, I think. Um, if I can just touch on the, um, the positives of Brexit, because I do think we need to take the debate there. Um, as, as a CBI, frankly, we're saying, let's move beyond leave and remain. Frankly, you know, that is not the point anymore. It is how we make this work, work as well as we possibly can. I think some of the positives I see are, first of all, I think businesses are thinking really hard about how they get better. It, 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 it's everywhere. Um, the focus on productivity, we're going to have to compete more strongly. You are seeing a lot of dynamism. Um, and uh, so that's one thing. I think it is just a shot in the arm. Um, but secondly, most areas in the UK, most sectors do want to remain aligned. We're just uh, doing a big piece of work which will show that. But there are some areas where we may be able to take advantage. I think agriculture is quite interesting, um, where we can, in the whole agri-foods agri area, we can, in a sense, almost go back to designing our food strategy for the future. I mean, I'd love that to be one of the grand challenges uh, that Bayes set, to be around food. And if we were to do that and go back to the drawing board on how we get a fantastically sustainable, affordable um, uh, food supply into the UK, that could be a real opportunity. Um, well, uh, I, it would be wrong of me to speak for Brexiteers because I wasn't one, but um, I will uh, make the case anyway in that um, uh, on, on what's to gain, I mean, as you said, farming policy is one area that has, um, and actually fisheries, which have been a disaster under EU stewardship and um, could be done much better. Um, I think, um, I do think there's actually an opportunity on trade deals um, I think that uh, the UK hasn't run its own trade policy, obviously, for 40 years, and we have a very different economy from other EU economies. And so, and you know, it's obviously much more focused on services, which I think require a very different approach from goods deals. And so, we're getting to a point in global trade where uh, it's much more, you know, a discussion about. Uh, about regulation and about um, you know professional qualifications and about regulatory cooperation, whether it's memorandums of understanding, and I think that the UK could be in a position to um, to make trade-offs that other EU countries can't. Um, uh, you know, we, we don't whether it's stuff that we don't produce, like uh, you know we don't grow oranges. So we, we have a whole load of stuff on the table that we're actually less sensitive to than the EU was, and we have a whole load of other priorities uh, and different principles. You know whether it's mutual recognition on regulation that we are more interested in than the EU could ever be, and I don't see why if um, you know if we are. Uh, if we are making our own independent trade deal, I don't see why the UK couldn't be a strong voice that could start to make a difference among countries that want to move forward 
uh, in those areas to make a real difference on that point. And um, you know, to, to, to see how these things can happen, TPP started as a bilateral conversation between Singapore and New Zealand. And so people say the UK is far too small to make a difference. I think that that is overplayed. Yes, we're not as big as the EU market, but we will have a very different, if we had a really together government that, um, that was, you know, that knew what it wanted to do, then I think, I don't see why we couldn't make some progress there. And then the other quick point is that the, um, a lot of the point of regulation on an EU level is, is to harmonise, is to build you know, a single zone. And therefore its point isn't always to improve the running of the economy. And so I think that if there's one advantage on that score, um, potentially to be gained, it's that we will be regulating with the right aim in mind. We will not be regulating with a political project in mind. We will be regulating for the good of... Uh, competition and customers and businesses and, and exports. And so that could be a very different mindset. Judith, many thanks. We're right up at the end of our time. John, last brief yeah. comment on opportunities. So I think it's an intangible and very unpredictable. If you take a 10-year mm. view, to John's point, countries develop in very unpredictable ways. And there is a case for Brexit, which is a, a kind of belief that it will unleash national energies in a way that they've been constricted in the past. And I suppose that might happen. <laughs> Jill, opportunities, in a, opportunities. Mi in a micro, micro thought. I think micro thought, one tweet, is taking back control means taking back responsibility. And I think that potentially has some very positive effects. We can't be victims of EU regulations anymore. We have to front up for what we're, the decisions we're making. Many thanks. And you'll hear more from the Institute on opportunities, indeed. Um, in due course. Thank you for terrific questions. Thank you for coming. Please join me in uh, thanking our wonderful panel. <laughs>